At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're going to be continuing our study of the book of 2 Corinthians. If you've been with us at Wildwood over the last number of months, you know that we're walking through the book of 2 Corinthians this year and most of our Sundays. And right now we're in the midst of a series in chapters 4 through 7 that talk about how do we endure on the mission that Christ has called us to. How do we endure on this mission? Now, endurance is something on our minds today because how many of you know somebody that's running the Oklahoma City Marathon this morning or ran the Oklahoma City Marathon this morning? Many of us do. So, you know, when you think about a marathon race, you often think, how do they endure? How do they make it all the way to the end? And as entertaining a thought as that is, it is actually more relevant for us to think about as followers of Jesus How do we endure to the end of the race that God has called us to run? Not just serve Christ and follow him during our college years or high school, but how do we serve him for the long haul? How do we follow him for the long haul? And inside of this section of scripture, we're finding some reasons why we might be encouraged to endure on the mission that God has called us to. Today we're going to be in part three of our study, looking at chapter 5, verses 11 to 15. But before we look at those verses together, I want to reflect with you for just a moment about my experience growing up. You know, in many ways, I feel like I won the parental lottery. I feel like I won the parental lottery. I, I, was, I was born to two great parents. And because of that, I, I had a, a sense from a very early age of wanting to live my life in a way that honored them and pleased them. That was just a part of the, 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 the system in the Robinson house. Now, when, when you might wonder, well, well, why did I feel that way towards my parents? I think there's a couple of reasons why I felt that way. In one instance, I felt that way because I respected them. They were my mom and dad. They were respectable people. And I respected the position they had to set boundaries and to talk about the life that was truly the the best life to live. And so because I respected them, I did my best, imperfect though it was, to try to live according to the standard that they set. And I knew that if I fell out of line that I was going to be accountable to them because they saw my life. And so that also was a part of this motivation of the respect that I had for my folks. But beyond just the respect... There also was the love. There also was love. And when I say love, I don't mean my love for them. Now, certainly, I do love my parents. But it didn't begin with me loving them. It actually began with them loving me. I grew up in an environment where my needs were met physically, emotionally, and spiritually inside of my home. What a gift to have growing up. And so I grew up in this environment where I experienced their love, and their love really propelled me to want to live in a way that would honor and please them. This was a part of what it was like for me growing up. Now, when I tell you that story, and I walk through that example, I know that for for some of you in the room, you're nodding, because that also brings back memories of your experience growing up. But I also know that for others in the room, it makes you shake your head. And it makes you go, wow, must be nice, pastor, that you had an experience where you had respectable and loving parents. I didn't have that. I had abuse. I had abandonment, whatever it might be. 
And if that's the case, I, I, just, I just know that there are some differences in our experiences. And I, I don't know exactly why all of those things happen that way, but I do have good news for all of us. And that good news is that we have a heavenly Father that we all can connect to. So in a sense, all of us have won the parental lottery in the sense that there is a heavenly Father who loves us and wants to provide for us and care for us and nurture us and grow us. This is what God has done for us. In light of who God is, in light of the fact that he is our heavenly Father, that we might be motivated to live as he would want us to live out of respect for him, out of fear for him, and out of love. Now, these concepts of, of fear or respect and love are, are talked about by a man by the name of Paul Barnett, who says this. He says, how is it possible to be motivated by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ? I mean, aren't those two things in opposition? He says, are not fear and love irreconcilable? It all depends on a proper understanding of fear and love, which it should be noted are not opposites. The opposite of love is hate. In the Bible, fear is not cringing terror, but holy reverence. And love is not romantic feelings, but sacrificial care. The two words are consistent and reconcilable. Indeed, the fear of the Lord and awareness of the love of Christ fit perfectly together to provide the true motivation for Christian ministry. And so, friends, when we think of enduring and the mission that God has called us to, Fear and love play prominently into those motivations, if we're thinking clearly. And this morning, we're going to look at chapter 5, verses 11 to 15, as we will see Paul expound upon and explain how he was motivated to continue on mission with Christ because of fear and love. I want to read these verses for us, and, and after I read them, we'll back up and, and we'll look at each of those things uh, separately. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so in these verses, we see something about fear or respect, and we see something about love. The first thing we see is something about the fear of God, the holy reverence for God, and how a holy reverence for God is something that motivates us to endure on mission. Now, in order to fully appreciate that, we need to go back where we ended last week. At the end of last week's message, as we looked at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5, we saw Paul say this in verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
Paul understood that one day he was going to stand before Jesus. The Jesus who he knew, the Jesus who had saved him, the Jesus who he followed. Paul knew one day he was going to see Jesus face to face. And not only him, but Paul understood that all people would one day stand before Christ. So understanding that he was going to see Jesus again one day, how did Paul respond? Well, we saw this last week. He responded by saying, so I make it my aim to please him. Because he knew that he was going to see Jesus again one day. Paul organized his life. He aimed his life. He made it the ambition of his life to please Christ now. This is what he's talking about in verse 11. When he says, he knows the fear of the Lord. He has an understanding of the reverence, a holy reverence that he has for God, knowing that he's going to be accountable to him, knowing that he's going to see Jesus again one day, knowing that those he is ministering to are going to see Jesus again one day. Paul says, because of that, I'm going to organize my life to please him now. Now, how would he respond? What would be an expression of the fear of the Lord for Paul in this context? You know, in one sense, we might think just any expression of obedience would have been a correct application of this. And, and in one sense, that's right. In every area of his life, Paul was going to be accountable, and so he needed to be obedient in all these different areas of his life, and he wanted to stand before Christ one day and be able to say, Lord, I was obedient to you. I followed you. But in verse 11, he's talking not just about a general sense of obedience, but he's actually talking about a specific response. Do you see it? In light of the fact that he feared the Lord, in light of the fact that he would one day see Jesus again face to face, what does he say he does? He persuades others. He persuades others. That's, that's what he does. Now, what is the connection? Why is it that Paul says, because I know I'm going to see Jesus again one day, why does he translate that into a response of evangelism? Why does he translate that into taking the gospel to those who haven't heard it yet? What's the connection? Well, in order to see that connection, we need to remember Paul's call. We need to remember Paul's call. Now, first of all, Paul was mindful of the Great Commission. Though Paul wasn't there on that day, Paul knew those who were. And he understood that right before Jesus ascended into heaven, Jesus gave what we know of as the Great Commission. When he said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus was giving a standing order to his followers says, what are you to be about as I'm getting ready to ascend to heaven? He says, you are to proclaim this message to all. You are to go to all, even people very different from you. And you are to proclaim this message. And as they respond, you're to baptize them. And as they are baptized, you are to teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And Jesus said, we're, we're going to do this together. I'm going to be with you in this process all the way until the end of the age. So Paul understood that the age wasn't over yet. 
And even as we gather here today, friends, the age isn't over yet. Jesus has not returned to the earth. And so there is a standing order that existed, and Paul was aware of it, to go and to proclaim Christ to all, inviting them to follow him. Now, not only was there a standing order of the Great Commission, but Paul had some personal experience with this. See, Paul was not a Christian when the Great Commission was given. Paul was, was, was reached on a road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And from the time that Paul was saved, he understood the call that God had on his life to proclaim Christ to the lost. Uh, we know this because there was a man named Ananias who lived in Damascus. And when Paul shows up, the Lord goes to Ananias and he says, Ananias, I want you to go and disciple this new con- conversion, this guy named, this guy named Paul. And, and, and Ananias is like, wait a minute, the guy that has been opposing us? And the Lord says, yeah, that guy, that guy. But I want you to know there's something about him. The Lord said to Ananias, go for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Ananias no doubt shared that message with Paul, and Paul would share it again and again in his ministry. Paul understood that though there was a standing order of the Great Commission, he also had a particular call on his life from God to be about time in ministry. And and not only that, but Paul also had been commissioned to this work. Paul was serving in a local church in the town of Antioch. And as he gathered there with Barnabas and a few other people, they were worshiping and they were praying, Acts 13 tells us, and they were fasting. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. And so Paul and Barnabas took off on the first missionary journey. And then after that, they went on the second missionary journey. You guys are sharp. And after that, they went on the third missionary journey, right? So they, 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 they kept going on these journeys. Why? Because there was a, a calling, a commissioning, not just in general, but specifically that they shared. And, and Paul understood that one day he was going to stand face to face with Jesus. And he was going to have to give an account, not just for his moral life, but he was going to have to give an account for what he had done with the Great Commission, what he had done with his calling, what he had done with his commission. And so he made it his aim to please the Lord by persuading others to know and to follow Christ. Now, this is what Paul had done, and this is what was in Paul's heart. He said, what we are is known to God. In other words, Paul was was admitting, hey, in my heart of hearts is a desire to proclaim the gospel to the lost. In my heart of hearts, Paul says, is this celebration when someone who is far from Jesus trusts him and comes to him. Paul says, that is what is in me. And friends, here's the thing. I know that's what's in you as well. If, If you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins in your heart of hearts, is the Holy Spirit that is celebrating when the lost are found. And and if you're honest, you fantasize at times about what it would be like to lead someone that you know and love to faith in Christ. You see, this is what is in our hearts. But what's fascinating is Paul says not just that this is what is in his heart, but he says this is actually also what has been demonstrated in their midst. What was in Paul's heart ultimately showed up in his hands and in his feet and in his actions He says, not only is who I am known by God, but he says also, 
I hope that it is also known to your conscience. I hope you remember the example that I lived out in front of you, Paul says. He says, I'm not just trying to commend myself to you, but I want to call to mind the experience that we shared together. Paul actually spent 18 months in Corinth ministering and serving Christ, sharing the gospel with people in that city. The the church at Corinth existed because of what God was doing through the apostle Paul, and he just reminds them of that. Paul says, not only is this in my heart, but it is something that is seen by you Corinthians, so that you might be able to, to boast, to celebrate to have a, a sense of, of joy in the ministry that God is doing through me in this city. So that even others could look on and understand that this ministry is real and authentic and not just a bill of goods that is being sold. He goes on and he says this, he says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. But if we are of right mind, it is for you. <laughs> Paul's Actions in this area made him look like a crazy man at times. I mean, think about it. He's beat up in a city. What does he do? He goes back into that city. Why? Because he knew that he had a commission to take the gospel to the lost. And so the opportunities that he had, he was taking advantage of them, and he was sharing the gospel. He seemed a little crazy to them. He, he was saying, God told me this, and that was a little crazy to them. He, he, he will say in his, his first letter to them that he spoke in tongues. That might have been a little crazy to the people there. But what Paul was saying was, Paul was saying, there are things in my personal experience of walking with God that you might think are a little crazy. But Paul said, as I have been ministering among you, I've been doing so with a right mind. In other words, Paul says, I've not just been among you, inviting you into an emotional experience, but he said, I have been presenting to you reasons for why you should trust in Christ and why you should follow him with your life. It says in chapter 18, verse 4, Paul ministered in Corinth, and it said he reasoned in the synagogue in every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Friends, Paul was presenting the reasons for why they should follow him. This contrast of being some considering him out of his mind or being in right mind is something that Tom Constable helps us understand a little more when he says what Paul meant by the charge of being beside himself and its opposite being of sound mind could and probably does include all the following possibilities. Some critics apparently attacked him for his teaching that differed from mainstream Judaism his ecstatic experiences, and his ceaseless service. To this, his response was, that is for God to judge. Other critics may have thought him crazy for speaking in tongues and having visions. For Paul, that was a matter between him and God. Occasionally, Paul may have appeared carried away with his emotions, but that conduct only resulted in God's glory. So Paul was saying, I have have not only have in my heart this love and and this desire to live out this commission, knowing that I'll see Christ again one day. But he says, it actually has shown up in my behavior. And you can document it over the 18 months that I've been in ministry with you in Corinth. And so we see in this Paul's call and his response based on the fear of God. But let me ask you, friends, what about us? What about our call? Is Paul the only one who is called? 
No, we also are called. Do you understand that we are called? The standing order of the Great Commission was until when? Until the end of the age. And the age isn't over yet. Christ has not yet returned. So what is the standing command for us as followers of Jesus? We are to engage in the Great Commission. We are to heed that call, knowing that one day we will see Jesus face to face and we will have to give an account, not just for our moral lives, not just for what we didn't do, but for what we did do, for how we participated in the Great Commission. Understanding that, do we understand the scope of the call? The scope of the call. The Great Commission was not just to send them out to those who looked like them, talked like them, in their family, in their workplace, on their block. But ultimately, the Great Commission was to take the message and the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone, everywhere. That was the scope. It was to nations, not just to a neighborhood. And so when we think about the, the scope of what God has, has called us to, he's, he's called us, friends, to take the gospel to those that we don't even know yet, which in, involves us intentionally placing ourselves in the lives of others. Friends, why is it that Wildwood has a local outreach team? Why is it that we have a team that organizes opportunities for us to, to reach out and interact with those in our community? partnering with various organizations. The reason why we do that is because we believe that God doesn't just want to reach those within an arm's length of us, but those even throughout our city. And why is it that we have a global outreach team that would encourage college students to spend their spring break in the Middle East talking to other college students about Jesus? And, and why is it that we would mobilize another set of church members to go to Mexico in the month of June to minister in churches in that area and to encourage them and to share Christ with them? And, and why, why is it that we would partner with missionaries and organizations all over the world who are serving in, in virtually every continent to proclaim Christ in those areas? Why are those things a priority to us? It's because we believe as a church that we will stand accountable to the commission that we have been given and that's true not only for us corporately, but friends, that's true for us even individually. How will we respond when we see Jesus one day? How have we invested in the commission that he has given to us? In light of the fear of God, Paul persuaded others. How about us? And Paul said it wasn't just something that was in his heart, it's something that showed up in his actions. And so I want to ask, does our understanding of our calling show up in our lives? Does it show up? When you look at the way that we live our lives, have we made room for the Great Commission? Are we involved in it? Now, when I ask all of these questions, there is a temptation for us to just feel a little bit defeated. We look backwards on our lives, we take a quick assessment, and we're like, yikes, maybe this is an area I've not given enough attention to. If that's the case, friends, I don't want you to spend your time looking back. Maybe look back for a moment, take an assessment, but here's what I want you to do instead. I want you to think about what you can do this month. What can you do this month to demonstrate a fear of God by sharing with others? 
For some of you, that might be organizing your June 6th through the 9th so that you can participate in Wildwoods VBS. You realize that we'll welcome into our building about 800 kids, about half of those people that, that are not from Wildwood, and we'll have a chance to impart Christ to the next generation. Man, we'd love to have you a part of that army. It just It's a little over a month from now to share Christ with our community. For some, that will be what responding looks like. For, for others, uh, your response might be to invite somebody to come to church with you. I mean, you look around, there's not that many empty seats, but there's some. Invite someone to come to church with you. Just say, hey, come, I'm, I'm learning what it means to follow Christ. I'd love to have you come and spend some time with us as we do that together. I'd love to introduce you to some friends of mine that we might reach out and extend invitations that way. For others, it might be to reach out to someone in your life and to sit down over coffee or a meal and, and just ask them their spiritual story. And then you have a chance to share your spiritual story as well and, and point them to Christ. So for others, as we think about the scope of this mission, it might be to begin praying for a specific missionary. Downstairs in our hallway are pictures of, of a number of Wildwoods missionary partners. There are also several of them found on our website. Begin praying for some of our missionary partners. Come next Sunday night as we have a night of prayer for the nations and, and pray for what God is doing around the world. If you are already contributing to a missionary in some respect. Continue contribution, but remember why you were doing that. Because the scope of the commission, and we're joining hands in service in that way. Friends, what would it look like this month for you to demonstrate a fear of God by sharing and reaching out to others? See, one day we will stand before Christ. May the fear of God, the holy reverence of God, be a motivator for us in mission. But there's a second motivation that's found in these verses. And that second motivation is not the fear of God, but it's the love of God. It's the love of God. And the love of God is, is what Paul says motivated him. Now, before we look at that in these verses, I want to just have us think for a moment, what does Paul not say here? What he doesn't say is that what motivates him is his immense knowledge. Paul was a very educated person. He doesn't say, what motivates me for mission is how much I know. And he, and he doesn't say, what motivates me for mission is just what a great guy I am. You know, that I'm just so gregarious, I just love people so much, and that's what has is, is, is got him involved in mission. That's not what he says. He doesn't say that it's those things that have motivated him. And instead, what does he say? He says that his motivation for ministry is the love of Christ that controls him. It wasn't Paul's love for others in and of himself, but it was Christ's love for others that controlled him, that compelled him, that pushed him towards ministry and service to others. It was the love of Christ. Now, this picture of the love of Christ controlling us is a, it's a very powerful picture. And I, I want to think about for just a moment what being controlled by something is like. How many of you like to go to the beach? Some of you have some problems, but the many hands went up. So when we think about liking to go to the beach, you might like to go to the beach and, and you begin to wade out in the ocean. And I'm not talking about some, you know, protected cove. I mean like the, the raging shore of the Pacific or the Atlantic. Big waves coming in. You wave out, you wade out a little bit. The water gets up to your knees and what begins to happen to your body? 
it gets hard to control, right? You're just kind of getting bounced around. And if the tide gets strong enough, guess what will happen eventually? It will sweep you out into the ocean. The tide will control you. Friends, what Paul is saying is that the love of Christ is like a tide that has swept in around him and then has pulled him out to sea so that he might love others. That's what he says. The love of Christ controls us. Now, how do we know Christ loves us? How do we know it? Well, you might think, well, maybe he knew it because of the song. Jesus loves me this. Come on, this I know. Yeah, thank you for not leaving me hanging there. Uh, is it, you know, is it because of the song? Is it just because somebody told him this? Is it just some sentiment that he had? No, it was way more than that, way more than that. He knew that God loved him because what he had done for him in Christ. And the scriptures themselves attest to this. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do we know God loves us? How do we know how much he loves us? Jesus on the cross spread his arms out wide and said, I love you this much. It is the death of Christ for us that that puts to rest the argument, does God love us? Yes, he loves us. He has demonstrated that love in Christ upon the cross. James Denny makes this comment. He says, the importance of this passage is that it connects the two relations in which Paul is in the habit of defining Christ's death. That is, its relationship to the love in which it originated and the sin with which it dealt. In love, Jesus came down to this earth for us. In love, he pursued us. And in love, he died to pay the penalty for our sins. This is what Paul says. He says, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The one Jesus went to the cross and died there. The scriptures we are reminded tell us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin are death. And so that is the consequence, that is the payment for sin. But Christ the one came and died for the many, us, taking the penalty that our sins deserve. That's what Jesus did. But this passage goes a little further, not just making that statement, but saying this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. In other words, Jesus' death was representative for us, paid the penalty for our sins, but but it's even better than that. It is saying that the old us, the part of us that is worthy of condemnation and judgment, died with Christ. So if we are here today and we have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are not who we used to be. Jesus' death and burial took old us with him. And then he rose. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus rose from the dead. And just as old us died, new us is born again in Christ. And so the life that we live now is not characterized by what you want or what I want, but it's characterized by what Christ wants. 
It's not motivated by how good we are in and of ourselves, but how great God is and the love that he has for others. And the love of Christ that has swept in around us and pulled us out to sea wants to involve us now in communicating his love to others. We're living for him now, not for ourselves. Isn't that amazing thought? Now, how is it that Jesus got the gospel to you? He got the gospel to you probably through the testimony and witness of another who was already caught up in the love of Christ. Paul's just saying, let's keep it going. May the same love that compelled whoever led you to the Lord to minister to you, may that same love compel us in service to others. Barnett says again, Paul is able to speak of the love of Christ displayed in his death, either in the staggering universal terms, one died for all, or in the deeply personal, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Christ's love is seen either in the immensity of the numbers loved or in the intensity of his love for each individual. And so as we think about his love, does it, does it motivate us? His love for us, his love for you, does it motivate you? to stay engaged in the mission. Well, first thing, we need to remember and know how much he loves you. Do we know how much he loves us? Friends, if we're honest, we have to say in some respects, no, I don't know. I know a little bit and it's great, but God's love is even greater than that. It's way better than I can describe. God loves you. He loves you enough to send his son to die for you. He loves you enough to not let you live for yourself only, but to involve you in his plan. This is what God has done for us. Do we know how much he loves us? In knowing what he has done and who he is, will you follow him? Will you follow him? Now, when you begin to to think about following Jesus into mission... What happens is we begin to list the reasons why that might apply to some, but not to me. That's kind of what we do. And so let me just ask the question, why would you not follow Jesus into mission? Why not? Now, this is not just a rhetorical question. I want you to actually answer it. And so what I would encourage you to do, if if you find yourself hesitant or resistant to following Christ into mission, and I don't mean with your vocation, I just mean with your way of life. If if you are are finding yourself resistant, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get a note card, three by five card, and I want you to begin to write down the reasons why you feel like you can't follow Christ into mission. I don't know enough. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my past experience. It might cost me something dear, like reputation, or maybe a little bit of money or some time. Um, It might be uncomfortable. Begin to write those things down on a paper. Like, Like, just put them down so that you can see them. These are the reasons why I'm hesitant to follow Jesus and the mission. Write them on a card. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the next 21 days, and I want you to read the Gospel of John. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to begin with John 1, like tomorrow. Read John chapter 1. And I want you to read your reasons. These are why I'm hesitant to follow Jesus. Then read John 1. And then after you read John 1, go back and ask the question, are those good reasons not to follow him? John writes his gospel so that we would see clearly the one that we were supposed to follow. 
So just ask the question, are these good reasons not to follow him? And then the next day, do it again. Read chapter 2, and then ask the question. Chapter 3, chapter 4. If you get to chapter 21, and the reasons on your list are still there, you haven't crossed them off, then let me know, because I would love to take you out and buy you lunch or dinner or coffee and talk about it. Because I am so convinced that if we understood who Jesus really is, that we would not hesitate to follow him anywhere, much less following him onto the mission that he has called us to. Friends, the love of God motivates us for mission. Now, I want to end with this. I want to end by sharing a verse, Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, but really a verse that summarizes a lot of what we just saw, especially in verses 14 and 15. Paul says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. The one died for all, therefore all have died. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That we might live not for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised again. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Compelled and controlled by the love of God, may we serve and minister and share the gospel with those around us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this great passage. Thank you for the truth that we have seen here and the reminders of how we might endure on this mission, remembering the accountability we have with you, but also experiencing the transforming power of your love for us. Lord, may, may we be a people that never forget these things, that, that follow you in faith, and that engage in the work that you have for us in this world. We thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.